History of the Abduction of William Morgan and the Anti-Masonic Excitement of 1826 to 1830, Part 4. Cross-examination by Mr. Spencer. The man who was with Smith is 500 miles from this place. He then lived at Lockport. Witness got to Wright's Tavern between 9 and 10 o'clock in the evening. He rode back to Lockport the next day in a sulky. He does not know how Smith got to Lockport. He does not know how the sulky got to Lewiston. He understood that the sulky was sent home. Did not see anybody start with it. The sulky was to be forwarded on east. The horse, he understood, was owned somewhere on the ridge. Might have had directions where to send the horse and sulky, but don't now recollect particulars. Witness saw persons at Wright's, perhaps half a dozen beside, besides those who resided there. Some of them were strangers. Wright lives at the point where the Lockport Road intersects the ridge. It is about three miles from Lockport. Saw three persons whom he knew at Wright's, besides those who went on with him. He knew the person who drove the carriage. A person on horseback rode up near them when near Molyneux. Took another carriage at Lewiston. The curtains of both carriages were closed down. Has seen Lawton Lawson in jail since, but did not see him at Wright's. Is confident of that. The same persons only who came from Wright's got into Fox's carriage. Fox's testimony is perfectly correct. A man who got a man got in near Youngstown. Witness met two or three strangers on the way from Wright's to Lockport on foot. He met them about three quarters of a mile from Wright's. Witness saw a stranger at the installation the next day, whom he was informed was John Whitney of Rochester. Morgan was left in the magazine. To the question in whose charge Morgan was left, the court interposed and said that persons not upon trial must not be implicated, and the question was not answered. The court also refused to permit the names of persons who were in the boat to be mentioned. Witness said they crossed the river in the usual ferry boat. The subject of Morgan's abduction was not agreed upon at a regular meeting of the Royal Arch Chapter at Lockport two weeks before it was done. There might have been a desultory discussion about it by the members of the chapter. Cannot tell the specific time. Cannot say it was during the September session. Does not recollect what he that he told a person that arrangements had been made by himself and two other sheriffs to carry Morgan off. Witness says, upon this oath, that he believed he had consented to go away voluntarily. Morgan made no complaint while witness was with him. There was no pistol either in the carriage or boat to the knowledge of the witness. The regular stage to Lewiston did not then run through Lockport. It was six of eight days before Morgan was at Wright's that Turner came and asked witness if there was a cell at Liberty. He stated that Morgan would be brought that night from Batavia, and a place was wanted for him till he could be sent on to Canada. Elihu Mather. This gentleman was indicted at the Orleans County Circuit Court, charging him with conspiracy to kidnap William Morgan, and his trial took place at the November term of the court, 1830. Over a week was occupied in impaneling a journey jury, and the most exciting of all the trials occurred in relation to the right of Masons to sit on the jury when one of the fraternity is to be tried. The oaths and obligations of Masons were here pretty well ventilated. The Masons were all excluded from the panel, except one who was admitted by Judge Gardiner, the presiding judge, he deposing on oath that he would have no more hesitancy in bringing in a member guilty, if proved, than one who had never belonged to the order. The anti-Masonic committee were very indignant towards the judge for this ruling and took upon the exceptions of the special counsel, special counsel to the Supreme Court where the decision was sustained. Not satisfied with this, they introduced the subject into the General Assembly as worthy of a legislative inquiry, and the Assembly ordered the judge to make a special report upon what grounds he had so decided. 
This report was an able and logical one and so clearly justified his action that even the most violent partisan never made a move to have the matter further investigated. The testimony on the trial of Mather was that when the Morgan carriage arrived at Gaines on the Ridge Road, he was applied to for a change of horses that he procured the team of his brothers, put them into the vehicle in the place of those that needed rest, mounted the box and drove the carriage to the next place of change when he returned home. This was all the part he had had with the affair, and it was not proved that he knew who the, who were his passengers or that he had ever heard of William Morgan. Upon these facts only being shown, the jury very properly acquitted him. He afterwards moved to Michigan and resided at Coldwater in that state, where he died in 1866 at the age of 84 years. Colonel, Colonel W.M. King. This gentleman at the time of the Morgan abduction resided on a farm about six miles from Lewiston near Youngstown. He was a man of unblemished character and possessed a reputation for exemplary integrity. He had represented Niagara County in both houses of the New York legislature and was widely known and highly esteemed. On the night that the Morgan carriage was driven to Youngstown, it stopped at Colonel King's and Bruce went in and woke him up, the hour being near midnight. Corridan Fox, the driver of the carriage from Lewiston, testified that King and Bruce conversed for some time together in the hall when Colonel King came and got into the carriage. He then accompanied the party across the ferry to Canada and returned with it and was present when Morgan was locked up by Giddings in the magazine. The next day, he participated in the ceremonies at Lewiston as well as Bruce, and it does not appear that he further troubled himself about Morgan or ever inquired after his fate. His health for some time had been feeble, being attacked with pulmonary consumption, for which he was advised by his physicians to seek a more southern climate as a check to the disease. With this view, he obtained an appointment as sutler in the army for a station at Cantonment Towson on a tributary of the Red River in Louisiana near the boundary line of Texas and left for this distant station a few months after the Morgan abduction. He was indicted for conspiracy and murder shortly after he left, and the Anti-Masonic Committee declared he was a fugitive from justice and demanded that an officer be sent to arrest and bring him back. A requisition from the governor of New York on the governor of Louisiana was procured, and Joseph Garlinghouse, sheriff of Ontario County, with Phineas P. Bates, ex-sheriff, thus armed, started for Louisiana. Garlinghouse and Bates, at the commencement of the legal proceedings against the abductors, had a special contract between themselves to share the profits of the venture, and if they could convict anyone of murder, they proposed to claim the $2,000 reward offered by Governor Clinton. They were therefore very zealous to procure Colonel King, as there was a count in the indictment against him for murder, and it was thought he might have been one of those who took Morgan out of the magazine on the night of the 20th of September. When they arrived at New Orleans, an officer of the military post where Colonel King was stationed, and also in the city, while they were getting the proper endorsement of their papers from the governor, learned their errand and hurried back to camp, arriving there before the sheriff and his deputy. He informed the colonel of what was in store for him. Colonel King determined not to be arrested by these officers and dragged back as a criminal in chains, but to go back by himself a free citizen and in New York boldly faces accusers. He therefore stepped over the line into Texas, and when the officers arrived at the camp, they could not find their prisoner. There would have been little danger or inquiry made if they had pursued and arrested him on Mexican soil, as that government paid but little attention to infractions of the international law in that remote region from the seat of government. But Garlinghouse and Bates were not the most courageous of men, and some hints of the colonel's friends in camp made them hurry on the road homeward. Colonel King immediately resigned his position and made haste to return to New York to meet the accusation against him. 
He arrived at Lockport about the same time the officers did and stood fearless and erect before his enemies and defied them to prove that he had committed any violation of the laws of his country. He was arrested, but was released on bail to appear for trial at a future term of court. But he was soon called to appear before a higher tribunal than that covenanted in the bond. He died in a few, a few weeks after, his friend said from an attack of hemorrhage of the lungs, his enemies of remorse and shame. Ezekiel Jewett. The indictment against this gentleman was for false imprisonment, charging him specifically with receiving Morgan at the fort and locking him up in the magazine. When the troops left the fort in May 1826, as has before been stated, the government property there was left in the custody of Giddings, who was the lighthouse keeper. But sometime in August, a commissary in the army visited the fort for the purpose of seeing what property was left with a view to make making some disposition or preserving it from waste. While there he made sale of certain articles belonging to the government, but not disposing of all, he employed Mr. Jewett to take charge of the balance and returned to his reg regiment. Thus it was that Mr. Jewett was quasi in possession of the fort in the September following, but on his trial it was proved that Giddings had the keys of the magazine and that they were never in the possession of Jewett, and all the testimony brought forward by the prosecution did not directly implicate the defendant in a remote way with the affair. His trial took place in Lockport in June 1830 before the special court, Judge Marcy presiding. It was a long and tedious trial, and it was at this term that the judge charged the state half a dollar for getting a tailor to mend his pantaloons. The jury in the case of Jewett were out but 15 minutes before they brought in, in a verdict of not guilty. Solomon C. Wright and Jeremiah Brown, the first a tavern keeper on the Ridge Road where the horses to the Morgan carriage was changed, and the latter who drove the carriage from Wrights to Lewiston were tried at this same term, and both also acquitted. Burridge Smith resided in Rochester September 1826, and in company with John Whitney took passage in the stage from Rochester to Canandaigua on the morning of the 12th of that month. He was one who accompanied the Morgan carriage, and it is supposed to be the one who rode in the sulky which waited for the carriage at Ackley's at the north end of the village. Others supposed him to be the mysterious Dr. Foster, who in company with Cheeseborough, Lawson, and Sawyer took Morgan from the jail, but this was proved by the testimony of Miss Hall and Dr. Wells not to be the case, as they deposed that the two bore no resemblance. Whichever way he may have left Canandaigua, it was well authenticated that he accompanied the party to Niagara. It will be seen by Bruce's testimony that he it was who informed him, Bruce, at Lockport, that Morgan was at Wright's and that he had rode out on ahead in the sulky to notify him of the fact. He was the next day at the installation at Lewiston and returned home the following day by the steamboat plying on Lake Ontario between Niagara and Rochester. After Cheeseboro, Sawyer, and Lawson were indicted, and the Anti-Masonic Committee publicly avowed their intention to prosecute everyone connected with Morgan's abduction, Smith and Whitney suddenly left Rochester and the state. They went to Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, and procured employment on the Ohio Canal, then being constructed around the falls at that place. The anti-Masons immediately proclaimed that Smith and Whitney were fugitive murderers and hastened to obtain the proper papers to arrest them in Kentucky. Smith was indicted on the, in the Ontario Special Sessions for Conspiracy and False Imprisonment. Whitney was also indicted at the same term, but of him we will speak more fully hereafter. The proper requisitions were procured of the governor, and Garlinghouse and Bates at once started for Kentucky. There were a large number of citizens 
of Ontario and Monroe counties at Louisville employed on the work of the canal, Major Nathaniel Allen of Ontario County, having a large contract thereon and had engaged laborers in his own section of the country. Through some of these, Smith and Whitney learned that Garlinghouse and Bates were on their way to arrest them when they immediately left before the officers arrived at Louisville. Smith went to New Orleans, but the officers did not pursue him farther, they having no authority to arrest their prisoners anywhere but on Kentucky soil. When Garlinghouse went to Louisiana for Colonel King, he also took with him papers for Smith, but did not find him. His wife soon afterwards joined him at Rodney, Mississippi, and he getting into business in New Orleans, determined to make it his permanent residence, but death soon put an end to his career on earth. In 1829, the yellow fever raged with great virulence in that city, and he became one of its victims. He died on the 17th day of August of that year. John Whitney and James L. Gillis. We have grouped these two individuals under one subhead for the reason that they were jointly presented in the indictment as co-criminals. For what reason it was never known except to the prosecutors and the grand jury who found the bill. We shall, shall, however, in treating of their cases, take up each separately, and unlike the court before whom they were tried, grant them separate trials. It was said that the reason they were jointly presented was that the Anti-Masonic Committee found they had more evidence to convict Whitney than Gillis, and by indicting and trying them together, they hoped to secure two victims instead of one. This may have been the proper solution, as it appeared they had some evidence against Whitney, while none worthy of belief was ever produced against Gillis. It has already been mentioned in speaking of the case of Burridge Smith that Whitney came to Canandaigua with that gentleman on the memorable 12th of September. His business there ostensibly was to employ a stonecutter for his business in Rochester, and his partner in his testimony on the trial stated they were in want of such a workman, and that Whitney told him that was his business to Canandaigua in the morning before leaving Rochester. But it was generally believed that Smith and Whitney went there that day pursuant to an arrangement to receive Morgan and take him to Niagara. While at Canandaigua, he made inquiries for a stonecutter, and several parties who knew him met him and testified that he appeared to be his only business. He was not at the jail when Morgan was taken out, but was overtaken by the carriage, traveling on foot a mile or two out of the village. He got up and rode on the seat with the driver to Victor when he procured a horse and went on ahead of the carriage to Rochester, where it is supposed he made the arrangements for the second carriage that took up the party at Hanford's. He went on with the carriage to Lewiston, or near there, and attended the installation on the 14th and returned to Rochester in the steamboat with Smith the following day. His own version of the affair is given in his testimony at the second trial of Mr. Gillis, which was as follows, quote, John Whitney, being duly sworn, stated in substance that he started from Rochester for Canandaigua on the 12th of September, 1824, in company with Burridge Smith, for the purpose of collecting a bill due him at Victor, and to get a stonecutter at Canandaigua, which was his only business and only object he had in view, and that he did not then know that Morgan was to be taken away, that he was imperfectly acquainted with the defendant at that time. He got on the box of the carriage containing Morgan about a mile out of Canandaigua. James L. Gillis was not in the carriage to his knowledge. He did not know Morgan at the time. Rode in the carriage to Beach's Tavern at Victor, where he left it, then watering at the trough, and got a horse of Dr. Beach to go to Rochester. He did not see the carriage after he left it to go into Beach's, until he saw it at the reservoir at Rochester. When he waked them up at Beaches, he went around to the kitchen door and from thence into the bar room, where he saw two or three persons, among whom was one of the Gillises. He thinks Enos, with whom he drank. 
was there in all 20 minutes or half an hour. Did not see James L. Gillis there, nor on the road to Rochester, nor at Hanford's Landing, where he was present when they changed carriages. And he could not have been there without his knowing it. Gillis did not ride out with him, nor did he see him to his knowledge at any place or anywhere on the road. No man of that name accompanied him, nor did he see any one of that name on the road. He knew of no restraint upon Morgan. He did not hear him threatened. He was not gagged nor blinded, nor to his knowledge was he intoxicated. He heard some fault found with Morgan about the course which he had pursued. Morgan manifested regret, and he, witness, understood from the company and from Morgan that Morgan was going west secretly for the purpose of preventing Miller and his associates from knowing where he did go, with the object in view to stop the publication of the book they were about to publish, and he, witness, verily believed this was the real object. Morgan complained of Miller and his associates, said they had led him astray, and he was sorry for it. He appeared perfectly satisfied in going off and spoke of an arrangement to go. On the Ridge Road, they stopped at two public houses, and at an orchard they got out, gathered, and ate apples, Morgan among the others, each walking about at pleasure. There was no jug of liquor in the carriage, but there was some brought into it in a tumbler. Witness took supper at Wright's and went on with the carriage to within about 10 miles of Lewiston. Witness does not know that Morgan was carried out of the state, nor what became of him. The carriage was not closed all the time. He had no conversation with Gillis, whom he saw at Beaches on the subject of Morgan. James L. Gillis did not ride in the carriage with Smith and himself from Victor to Canandaigua. Witness did not take tea at Ackley's, nor was he about the post office that day or night, except coming in, in or going out from Canandaigua. The persons in the carriage were addressed by their correct names. He informed or engaged to inform those who were going to the installation at Lewiston that this carriage was on its way, and he expected himself to go with them. It was told to Morgan that he should be as well taken care of as though he published the book, if he did as he agreed. He does not remember of hearing any reason for putting Morgan into the carriage by force, but Morgan admitted that he had agreed with Lowton Lawson that he had agreed to go and appeared to apologize and stated that he did not know what the arrangements were at the jail. Witness thoroughly understood that the only object was to keep Morgan from Miller and his associates and stop the publication of the book, unquote. When Whitney was apprised while at work on the Ohio Canal that Garlinghouse was on his way to arrest him, he left Louisville and went to St. Louis, where a brother-in-law of his resided. But after remaining there for a short time, returned voluntarily to Rochester and surrendered himself. James L. Gillis, the co-respondent of Whitney, at the time of the Morgan abduction was a resident of the northwestern part of Pennsylvania, where he had located in the year 1822. He was a native of Washington County, New York. He served in the War of 1812 and was with General Scott at the Battle of Lundy's Lane, where he was wounded. That part of Pennsylvania to which he had emigrated was at the time a wild country, but, and but few inhabitants had ventured to take up their abode in so dreary a region. For 10 years after his settlement there, his nearest post office was 70 miles distant. In the spring of 1826, his wife's health failing, he took her on a visit to two of his brothers who resided at Victor, Ontario County, New York. Her health not improving, he left her at Victor and went to New York City on business. From there via Philadelphia, returned home, his affairs demanding his personal attention. His wife continued to grow worse and died at his brother's in Victor in July, and it was over a month before he could receive the sad news owing to his isolated locality. He immediately commenced the journey of some 200 miles on horseback and reached Victor in the earliest time possible. He did not get ready to resume his journey homeward till about the time of the Morgan abduction, 
but was prepared to leave in a day or two. On the 12th of September, he went to Canandaigua to negotiate a draft on Philadelphia at one of the banks in that village, but not having completed his business when the regular stage left, he returned in the evening by a return extra coach to Victor. He then concluded to go on to Rochester the same night to expedite matters and close up his business preparatory for his early return to his home in Pennsylvania. He had in Rochester previously sold a quantity of wheat and purchased a lot of mill irons to take with him back to Pennsylvania. He thinks he must have been ahead of the Morgan carriage all the way to Rochester as he neither saw or heard of it and had never till some days afterwards ever heard of Morgan at all. A witness by the name of Felt on the trial testified that Gillis is a thorough driving man who starts on a journey without regard to day or night. Another witness testified that Gillis is a businessman and very enterprising. He, having closed his affairs in that section of the country, soon after returned to his home in Pennsylvania. It was some time in that out-of-the-way section of the country before he heard what was going on or that he was accused of being one of the, quote, Morgan abductors, unquote. But it did reach him after a while, and he at once started for Canandaigua to inquire into matters, into matters and confront his accusers. When he arrived at Canandaigua, he was formally arrested before he got out of the stage and put under bonds to appear at a future term of the court. At the term of court to which he was recognized to appear, he was present and demanded his trial. But Whitney not having returned from the West, Gillis was refused a trial until his co-respondent was arrested and in the jurisdiction of the court. So he alternated back and forth between New York and Pennsylvania at every term of the court for nearly, nearly two years. It was finally stipulated between the attorneys that Mr. Gillis need not attend any more terms until he was served with notice that the prosecutor and the court were ready to hear and determine his case. At length, Whitney returned and was arraigned on the indictment. The case came on for trial at the May term, 1829. A notice of the time of the trial had been sent by mail, but owing to the irregularities of the mail facilities of that day, and the great distance to any post office from Mr. Gillis's residence had failed to reach him. The opening proceedings in the case are here subjoined, from which it will be seen that Mr. Gillis was not present, but was patiently awaiting a summons at his home in Pennsylvania to appear when informed his case was ready for trial. Ontario General Sessions, May term, 1829, the People versus John Whitney and James L. Gillis, indictment for conspiracy, Nathaniel Howell, judge, for the people, John C. Spencer, special attorney, and Bowen Whiting, district attorney. For the defendants, Vincent Matthews, Ebenezer Griffin, Dudley Marvin, and M. H. Sibley, Esquires. John Whitney, president. James L. Gillis, absent. Mr. Spencer declared his intention of trying the defendants together. Mr. Griffin desired that Whitney might be tried alone, but Mr. Spencer insisted that there was a connection between the two and persisted in trying them together. Mr. Sibley objected to the trial of Gillis in his absence and appealed to the court to have his trial postponed in the consideration of the peculiar circumstances of the case that Gillis had attended three or four times ready to be tried from another state, that the notice of trial which had been sent to him had not reached him. A long discussion followed between Mr. Spencer and Mr. Sibley, and the court declined putting off Mr. Gillis's trial. The court intimated an opinion that the defendant should be tried separately but would not direct. The special attorney remarked that the reason for trying them together was the convenience of the witnesses and the little remaining time in the present term. Mr. Sibley then read an affidavit that John C. Cooper was a material witness for Gillis and had been subpoenaed, but has not attended and applied to put off the trial of Gillis in consequence. The court again overruled the motion to postpone the trial of Gillis. 
trial postponed till afternoon. That afternoon, Mr. Sibley wished to be considered as not assenting to the trial of Gillis in his absence. The trial then proceeded and a massive testimony was taken. The evidence showed pretty plainly that Whitney accompanied the Morgan carriage from Canadagua to some point on the Ridge Road west of Rochester, but the only possible proof that Mr. Gillis had any connection with the affair was that he was in Canandaigua the same day and returned to Victor the same evening the carriage did. A Miss Collier living at Victor said she saw the carriage go into the yard of Enos Gillis, the defendant's brother, but afterwards admitted that it might have been the carriage of Samuel Gillis, which often went there, and it might have been some other evening she saw it. So long a time had transpired she could not remember. Two other witnesses, Aldrich and Cohn, gave some testimony of seeing the defendant Gillis with the Morgan party while it stopped at Victor, but their stories were so contradictory and so completely rebutted by other and more respectable witnesses that there was no doubt of their impeachment. The trial resulted in the jury bringing in a verdict of guilty as to Whitney, but were unable to agree upon a verdict as to Gillis. Whitney was then sentenced by Judge Howell to be confined in the Ontario County Jail for the term of one year and four months, and the sentence immediately carried into execution. In June 1830, he was taken out of jail and conveyed to Lockport by the prosecution as a witness to testify in the case of Ezekiel Jewett. But when he placed upon the stand, to, he refused to be sworn, saying that, quote, he was not in the enjoyment of any of the rights and privileges of a citizen, and his body was kept in confinement, and he preferred confining his mind also, unquote. The court ordered him to be in prison 30 days in the Canandaigua jail and to pay a fine of $250 for contempt. It does not appear that the order for contempt was ever executed and was either remitted by the judge subsequently or by a pardon obtained from the executive of the state. His term of imprisonment expired in September 1830 when he was released. He returned to Rochester, but after a few years he emigrated to the West, first to Michigan and thence to Illinois, and lived to a ripe old age, a highly respected and useful citizen. He died in the city of Chicago, 1870, aged over 80 years. Immediately after the joint trial of Whitney and Gillis and the jury, jury failing to agree as to the latter, a sheriff was sent to Pennsylvania to re-arrest Mr. Gillis and bring him to Canandaigua, which being done, he was required to renew his bail and his second trial postponed to some future term. After several journeys back and forth again, Mr. Gillis's case was brought on for trial at the November term, 1830 and was one of the last, if not the last, of the trials ever had in relation to the Morgan affair. Judge Howell again presided, but John C. Spencer was no longer the public prosecutor. He was succeeded by Victory Birdseye, who was assisted by Bowen Whiting, the district attorney. Mr. Gillis was defended by Messrs. Barnard, Griffin, and Sibley, attorneys and counselors. Neither Mr. Gillis nor his counsel made any objection to the panel of jurors, and the prosecution exhibited none of that reviling or the bitter spirit which had been exhibited under the administration of the former public prosecutor. In fact, it was remarked that the trial was a fair and manly investigation and was long remembered as distinguished from the former trials as honorable to the cause of justice to the bar, the bench, and the jury box. The testimony was substantially the same as on the former trial. The trial only lasted three days. Mr. Barnard, one of Gillis's counsel, closed his address to the jury with the following eloquent peroration in summing up his argument, quote, what is the case of Gillis? For four long years, he has been, has he been charged with crime when to charge was to convict. He has suffered and borne without murmuring the taunts of a pitiless world of the wicked and honest, but deceived, and now comes to throw himself upon you for protection. 
Eight times, including the present, has he been here for trial, once been tried in his absence when 12 men couldn't bring him in as guilty. He walked over the burning plowshare, bare but unblistered. We all know that the public ear was filled with rumors of his absconding, yet you saw him come here after his indictment and confront his accusers, and you will remember the public ceremony ceremony of serving a warrant upon him as he arrived in the stage. Not satisfied and without notifying him for a second trial, a formal requisition is made upon the governor of Pennsylvania, a sheriff sent for him, and his extensive business once more interrupted. More expense must be added to the enormous amount he had already been compelled to pay out. And hardly had he arrived on the confines of this state before the press groans again with his criminality, and again the selfish, the cold, the wicked, and the vulgar unite in heaping infamy on his name. Gentlemen, he is now yours. His home, with its infant circle and its new ties, waits for the joyful return of the husband and father, or to receive tidings of its desolation, the burial of its peace and its hopes. God avert from him and his house such a calamity. Gentlemen, he is innocent. He is innocent. And even now, methinks I hear the echo of your righteous verdict. He is, he is, unquote. The jury, without hesitation, brought in a verdict of not guilty, and Mr. Gillis was then released from further expense and trouble from this harassing and expensive affair. The excitement soon after was consigned to its grave, and the old courthouse in Canandaigua and the whole community enjoyed a more healthy calm. Judge Gillis, now having vindicated his character from the anti-Masonic aspersion, returned to Pennsylvania and pursued, pursued his avocations without further interference. To show the inveterate animosity of the anti-Masonic leaders towards everyone who might be suspected of being concerned in the abduction, it will only be necessary to refer to an incident in connection with Mr. Gillis and the determination of some of them to ruin financially if they could not prove any crime against them. The courts of general session were composed of a presiding judge and two associate judges, which were generally denominated side judges. These latter were generally picked up out of some country justices of the peace and selected by the partisan managers to help the ticket, but with little regard to their fitness or capacity. The office was a mere mere sinecure, and the presiding judges who were appointed by the governor and selected generally for their competency as jurists paid but little attention to their associates, who frequently were devoid of all knowledge of the devious ways of the law and were content to enjoy the honors of their stations and the pay they received, scarcely ever interfering with the presiding judge's ruling. At the time of the joint trial of Whitney and Gillis, Judge Howell had for one of his associates on the bench a brawling anti-Masonic politician by the name of Rawson. After the verdict of the jury was received in which it disagreed as to Gillis, this Rawson remarked to some of his anti-Masonic friends on the veranda of the principal hotel that, quote, if they could not get Gillis convicted, they could at least ruin him. They could keep him trotting back and forth from Pennsylvania to Canandaigua till he became a bankrupt. Then his money gone, it would be an easy matter to get a jury to bring in a verdict of guilty, unquote. Someone overhearing this threat reported it to Mr. Gillis. It was said that it was the only time that Mr. Gillis had ever lost his patience or manifested any passion toward his persecutors. But on this occasion, he exhibited some considerable excitement. He immediately sought Rawson and finding him near the entrance to the hotel, surrounded by a large crowd of people who were from from all parts of the country attending the term of court, Mr. Gillis demanded of him to know if he had been correctly informed in regard to what he had been told by Rawson. 
been told he, Rawson, had said. It is supposed that Gillis's appearance under the excited state of his feelings was rather belligerent, and Rawson sunk, slunk back and maintained a strict silence until the demand had been repeated, when in a trembling voice he replied, quote, perhaps I did make such a remark, unquote. Gillis then said, quote, Judge Rawson, I am here a prisoner, not a free man, but I warn you, if you ever stepped your foot on Pennsylvania soil, or if I hear of your being away from this county, I will travel 300 miles if necessary to meet you, and will then inflict such a castigation upon your carcass that only the grave shall hide your shame, unquote. The crowd, although composed mainly of anti-Masons, applauded Mr. Gillis, and Rawson felt the rebuke so keenly that he resigned his position and never again sat, as he was called, a basswood judge afterwards. He was appointed as one of the delegates to the Anti-Masonic National Convention at Baltimore in September 1830, but declined to go, it is said, for the reason that he feared Gillis would meet him somewhere on the route or at Baltimore. After his acquittal, Mr. Gillis entered upon a large and extensive business of farming in the manufacture of lumber. He resided there for 40 years and was honored by several successive elections to both houses of the state legislature and several local and judicial offices of his county. In 1856, he was elected a member of Congress from the 24th District of Pennsylvania. This district was composed of the counties of Venango, Warren, Elk, McKean, Clarion, Jefferson, and Clearfield the largest congressional district at that time in the state. After serving his term in Congress, he was appointed by President Buchanan, Indian agent for the Pawnee Reservation in Nebraska, for which office he held until 1862. In that year, he took up his residence at Mount Pleasant, Iowa, where he still resides at the age of 82 years, a hale and hearty old man, revered and esteemed by all who know him. Thus, we close our short history of these trials and the parties charged with the abduction of Morgan. David C. Miller, the first instigator and partner of Morgan in the publication of the, quote, Morgan book, unquote, is reported, it is reported sold the first edition of the work very rapidly and was preparing to issue another in a more ample form when it seems that Elder David Barnard, having added greatly to the Morgan work, procured another copyright and being supported by the seceders convention at Leroy and the anti-Masonic committee, Miller abandoned the further publication of the work. It appears that his venture was a success in a financial point, and he had but little delay in disposing of his whole edition at $1 each. He demurred to Bernard's right to usurp his prerogative as the Morgan publisher, but the anti-Masons promising to elect him clerk of Genesee County, an office worth from two to $3,000 a year, he withdrew his claim. He was elected such clerk in November 1828, but did not hold the office to the end of the term. He neglected or was wholly incapable of performing the duties of the office for which he had been elected, and his old habits of intemperance increasing upon him, the records of the county and of the courts were soon in a jumbled mass of confusion, so much so that the court appointed a competent man to take charge of the office. He became besotted, and his son, who had ostensibly taken his place as editor of the Republican Advocate, succeeded no better than his father. They both left Batavia in 1832 and went to Pennsylvania as it was understood, and he was no more heard of about or in Batavia and left no friends who took sufficient interest in his fate to make any inquiries as to his subsequent career. Miss Morgan, the wife or widow left at Batavia after her husband's disappearance, has had a history assigned to her almost as mysterious as the fate of her consort, as she has had more reported locations for her residence since that period than usually falls on the lot of one woman. 
At one time, it was reported that she was living in Pennsylvania, at another in Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois, and many persons claimed that they knew her in Kentucky and others in Michigan. He was told that some 10 years after she became a, quote, widow, unquote, she married Miller. It was said that she held a written contract between her first husband and Miller, and that under that contract, Miller was indebted to the estate to a considerable amount, and by marrying the widow, he saw the cheapest way to liquidate the debt. But the facts, so far as known, are these, and we have them from a gentleman now residing at Leroy. She did hold the bond signed by Dyer and Davids for the payment of one-fourth part of the sum, which should have been received from the sale of the book published by Miller, that those gentlemen strictly complied with the contract after deducting the such sums as they had become liable for as surety for Morgan to keep him out of jail, that the money she thus received with donations from sympathizers enabled her to purchase a small farm about six miles from Batavia, upon which she moved, and from the income of which she derived a fair support. The farm was close to a Four Corners, where some mechanic shops and a store were erected, and the place was ever since been called Morganville. Here she resided until 1837, when a stranger visited her and they were married. She sold her farm and with her husband went west. His name was unknown, or since has been forgotten, and it was understood that he was a Mormon. Elder Bernard. It is understood made money on the second edition of Morgan's book, and for years was a most vindictive and malignant persecutor of Freemasonry. He was charged with many disreputable acts, and after the excitements ceased, became very unpopular in Genesee, and removed to Chautauqua County, where it is believed that he still lives at an advanced age. In 1868, some parties in Dayton, Ohio, conceived the idea of reviving the war on Masonry, and for this purpose reprinted Bernard's Light on Masonry. The publishers wrote to Bernard, and it's as its original author, to write an introduction to the revised edition, but he declined. In his reply, he gave his reasons as follows, quote, I have no war with the Masonic fraternity. Indeed, I owe no man anything but love. I have no disposition, therefore, to create another excitement against the order. I would live and die in peace with all mankind, unquote. Thurlow Weed, whom we have so frequently mentioned, as one of the leader, leading organizers of the political anti-Masonic party, and who did much to keep the excitement up as so long as there was a remote prospect of the success of the party in the state and a possibility of making it national, has ever since exercised a controlling influence in the politics of the country. He was one of the leading organizers of the Whig Party in 1834 and for 20 years was one of its most able champions. He has only been excelled as a successful journalist by a few men in this country. He may well be classed equal with Bennett, Greeley, Raymond, Croswell, Webb, Bryant, Blair, Green, Madary, Ritchie, Prentice, all of whom were his contemporaries, and with Clapp, Dawson, Cassidy, Gray, Godwin, Forney, Story, White, Bowles, Jones, and many others who now stand at the head of the profession. He was always the intimate friend of the late Governor Seward, and also with Horace Greeley up to 1854, when the latter dissolved the partnership of the firm Seward, Weed, and Greeley by a published announcement in which the latter withdrew from the firm. Greeley and Weed, after that period, were not on intimate terms, and Weed strenuously opposed Greeley in 1872, notwithstanding he had signified his opposition, opposition to the Grant administration, and it was supposed would support the liberal Republican nomination. But the coolness that had existed between him and Greeley since 1854 permitted him to make some exertions to defeat his old friend and co-worker in the Whig days, but when he was of no more earth, 
he wept the true tears of sympathy over his grave, and no one was more sincere in lamenting the death of the great journalist. Mr. Weed long ago retired from active journalistic life and resides in a, quote, brownstone front, unquote, in opulence on Fifth Avenue, New York, hale and hearty at an advanced age. He retired from the Albany Evening Journal soon after the election of Mr. Lincoln in 1860 and removed to New York. He was employed by Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Seward during the war on a secret mission to Europe. He was also selected administration in various other confidential missions by the late, by, by the of a delicate nature during that critical period of the country's history. After the war, he could not remain inactive, but in the spring of 1867, purchased the commercial advertiser, a New York evening paper, and commenced his editorial life anew but ill health caused him to abandon the newspaper business forever. Some years now, he has been contributing to the magazine literature of the day, and his articles are read with great interest by the public. In his salutary on assuming the editorship of the commercial advertiser in 1867, he mentions many personal reminiscences of his early life, but omits all allusion to the subject of Morgan and political anti-masonry. From this, it may be inferred that he would desire his biographer, when the time comes to write his life, to blot out of his history all reference to the abduction of William Morgan in the anti-Masonic excitement of 1826 to 1830. The end.